please turn with me to the same chapter Rob read from earlier. Philippians chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 to 11. It seems to be a good theme to strike as many of you go home for the summer, and, but also as many of you uh, leave us departing. Um, a good reminder, a good send-off. And we're going to focus on one phrase in this text, which is rejoice in the Lord. Let us hear the word of God, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcise the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss. In view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but excrement, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is God's word, and it is eternally true. Now, first of all, a comment. Why did I say excrement instead of you might have rubbish, you might have any number of things? Because when you read commentaries, so often our, our culture, our middle class English sort of British ethos that we've grown up in causes us to not want to read what the Bible actually says in it. It causes the translators to flinch. So if you'll go to the commentaries, you'll read that word and what the commentaries say about it. They'll say, well, you know, probably the word rubbish would, would, would be good here, but it doesn't get it what it is. And then they describe what it actually is. And what it actually is is either the refuse of the human body or food that's in that condition. So I want you to see that Paul is being Hebrew. He's not being British or English. He's hitting this hard. And he's saying, I count this stuff to be the refuse of the human body. That's, that's how awful this stuff is. So I'm not taking liberties with the text. Now, let me ask you a question. How does Satan control us? Uh, Does Satan come down uh, onto the earth and does he take chains of iron and does he put them around us and and then take away the key? Does he put handcuffs on us and handcuff us to to a post uh, out in the public square? What does Satan do? Well, Satan's a very sophisticated enemy. And if you were to look at your own life and say, what has caused there to be seven years of impotence in your spiritual walk? 
or 10 or 20, I think with me you could say that the most effective technique that Satan has is to make you feel sorry for yourself and to make you think that you're hopeless and to make you think that there's no joy in this life. You can feel spiritual as you think that. You can think, well, that's good that I feel this way because, in fact, heaven is the only joy that we're supposed to have as Christians. So there's a certain spirituality that he can even use to push us in that direction. But let me ask you this question. Um, how, how does a lack of joy and how does a feeling sorry for yourself and a sadness, a pervasive sadness, or their flip side, stoicism and fatalism and a love of death and black, all right. How do these things bind us? What do they, how do they do it? Well, an awful lot of it depends upon us thinking one of two things. Us thinking either that God is not fair or thinking that we are hopeless. And, uh, you know, depending on your personality, you will, you will be oriented in one of two directions. Generally, churches with Reformed doctrine think more about us being hopeless than they think about God being fair. You know, it's a we have sort of a larger vision of God, right? But it's not large if we think that sinful man can bind the power of God, right? And so, if you think about this, you think, okay, the Apostle Paul, like a normal preacher, he's, he's getting to the end of his sermon, he says, finally, my brother, and then he takes off on a two-hour aside, right? He says, finally, we're getting to the end, and then he goes off on this tangent, right? And what is it? He's coming to the end, and he wants to say inoculate us as he's saying goodbye, right? What does he say? He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Um, and then he says this, to write the same thing again is no trouble to me. If you go through the book of Philippians, you'll see he is writing the same thing again and again and again. And if you go through all of the Apostle Paul's writings, you'll see he is writing this again and again and again and again and again. All right? He says, it's no problem for me to say this again. He says, and it is a safeguard to you. Why? Because it's God's inoculation against Satan's bondage that we all get into. Um, what is Satan? What does the Bible tell us he is? In Revelation 12:10, it says this, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For why? For the, what? The accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night, if he accuses us before God day and night, you know he hasn't lost any sleep accusing us day and night also. You know that even at night you can have dreams accusing you of things that aren't really true of you. Augustine wrote about this in the Confessions. Are you morally culpable for those dreams? Well, this is what Satan is. And so seeing the complete lockdown jailhouse, hopeless bondage that this evil one gives to Christians. The Apostle Paul gets a huge old syringe, a horse syringe, of penicillin against this. And what is it? What's the syringe he's going to inoculate us against it with? It is, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Now, at this point, we're tempted to hear that and to think that what that means is that we have to work it up. Now, it's always our tendency to turn everything into legalism. And even at the point where the Bible says reject legalism, uh, we can turn the rejection of legalism into legalism and think that we have to be, uh, you know, what the Brits call happy clappy. You know, that if 
that if we can somehow find a preacher or find a, a chorus or find a hymn or find a movie or find a book or find a drug or something that will make us happy clappy, then we'll have reached that state of Christian victory where we rejoice in the Lord, right? Or if we can't find anything external, then we'll manufacture it ourselves. And Lloyd-Jones, a lot of this sermon comes from his books. If you want to feed where I feed, go to Lloyd-Jones. Go to his biography, go to his preaching, his sermons. You can't go wrong. Anyhow, Lloyd-Jones at this point says something to the effect that uh, there are few people that are more of a pain to be around. Being a Brit, he doesn't say it like that. But he says, then, then people that are like trying to be happy, clappy, you know. He says, because everything about them is insincere. You know, when you're around them, you feel like you're a conspirator in, 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 in a lie, you know. And, and, and they're always telling you how happy they are and how good things are. And when you look at them, you know they're neither happy nor are things good for them. What you know is that they have long ago given up being honest with God or with themselves or with the people that they're around and that they're trying to pull one over on us, but that they have no victory in the Lord. They have no sort of normal sense of their own fallenness and their own sin, but also a deep and abiding uh, security in the completed work of Jesus Christ. But rather they're on a legalism of rejoicing. Do you know what I'm talking about? And this is not what the Apostle Paul is holding out to us. He's not telling us, you know, uh, find a drug that works or, you know, change your personality so that you're happy clappy. That's not it. What he's saying is rejoice in the Lord. Now, about at this point, we being uh, sentimental creatures think that if he's telling us to rejoice in the Lord, we will now be done with theology. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because we all have this deep and abiding sense that theology is antithetical to joy in the Lord, antithetical to unity of the Spirit, antithetical to the fellowship of the body in the church, that it is just one cosmic downer. And so if he's telling us rejoice in the Lord, we're going to just read a bunch of sort of sort of nice, sort of uh, misty, vaporous, sort of platitudinous, sentimental crud now, and that's how we'll rejoice in the Lord. You know, he'll say rejoice in the Lord. It's no problem saying this again, and it'll be a safeguard to you. Uh, life is good. The clouds are white. The sky is blue. You know, the azaleas are blossoming. The tulips were beautiful. It's getting warm. God loves you. I love you. God loves you and has a wonderful man for your plan. Or wife for your life. I forget how that goes. But certainly, he won't make a theological statement at this point because emotions and truth don't go together, you know. Emotions are emotional and truth is sort of something that you have to do like a bitter work like you know, shoveling snow. But, you know, right now we're on emotions. It says rejoice, so let's get on with it, right? So look at what he does. What does he do? Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me. It's a safeguard for you. And then look at verse 2. Look at it. It says what? Beware of the dogs. 
Now, you know the Apostle Paul is not dumb. So why is the Apostle Paul going directly from a command to rejoice in the Lord to a statement, watch out for, and not watch out for thunderclouds, you know, but watch out for yourself that you might tell yourself it's not safe to rejoice. Now, he says, watch out for the dogs. Now, we like dogs. Jews don't like dogs. Uh, when I was reading a book about where to go on a vacation with my wife, which we just got back from, the one thing I read about the place we were going to was that the whole place is filled with mangy dogs. All right? So we got there, sure enough, all over the place were these mangy dogs, you know, scratching themselves. Um, that gets us somewhat in the direction of what the Apostle Paul is doing, but none of us have the slightest ability of relating to what the Apostle Paul is doing here because dogs were absolutely, well, they, they were like pigs to Jews. Dogs were filthy, dirty, disgusting. And when the Pharisees, who prided themselves on being absolutely clean, when they wanted to speak of non-Jews, Gentiles, you know what they called them? They called them dogs. And if you know anything about their attitude towards the gleam, all right, you know that this was not a compliment. Now, why were dogs disgusting? Well, dogs were disgusting because they would eat anything. And you know that the center of the purity of the Jews was their system of cleanliness. That's what set them apart from the nations. They had particular things they could and couldn't eat. And if you've been disciplined in reading through the Bible and read all those gnarly uh, dietetic regulations uh, in the Old Testament, you know some of the rules, you know, whether their feet were cloven or not. You know, whether they, I don't even know what, what they all were, but it just goes on and on. But here comes along a dog, and a dog will eat anything. It has absolutely no discrimination. It'll eat anything. So dogs symbolized to the Jews. Uh, you know, dogs would go anywhere. Dogs were not in the slightest concerned about their ceremonial cleanliness. And so if you got around a dog, you were filthy because the dog was filthy. So to call you a dog lover wouldn't be nice, but to call you a dog was about as rude as it gets. So what's the Apostle Paul doing here? Well, watch. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. All right? So the dogs are the evildoers, are the false circumcision. All right? Parallel construction. So, again, rejoice in the Lord. I don't mind saying it again. Rejoice in the Lord. This is a safeguard. You beware of the dogs. The dogs, those who are the false circumcision, those who are the cutters of the body. All right? Those who are trying what? Well, you look on and you see what they're trying to do. And this is a theme all through the epistles. All right? What are they trying to do? They're trying to bring Christians back into the bondage of the law. All right? And so what are they, the dogs? They're the evil workers, the false circumcision, all right? And they what? He says, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and what? Put what? No confidence in the flesh. So if you follow the parallel construction through where he flips it and saying the negative instead of the positive, the dogs are evil workers, false circumcisers, false cutters, 
and people who do not worship in the Spirit, do not glory in Christ Jesus, and who what? And who put confidence in the flesh. Now, if you know the history of Galatians particularly, but you know all through the Bible what the theme in the New Testament is of the conflict in the church, what you know is that the church from the very beginning had a terrible problem with Jews who recognized the Messiah. They recognized Jesus Christ as the Messiah, but who could not make peace with the concept that God was now giving these dogs, the Gentiles, the cleanliness of the cross. And so, you know, they would let them in the church, but then they'd tell them immediately, but you have to be circumcised. And so what they were really doing was they were really saying, well, yes, you know, there is a certain sense in which Jesus will save you, in which the cross is our hope. But, you know, you've got to be a Jew. And this shouldn't be difficult at all for us to understand. I, I've been in a number of churches, um, both as a pastor and as a pew sitter, and every single church has the circumcisions that you have to do to get into it, all right? Um, and they're cultural. And the arguments that we come up with to say that they're transcendent and they're biblical are monumentally effective in intimidating newcomers who don't fit. I always fantasize when... Uh, I'm involved in discussions over certain aspects of church life. I always fantasize about taking all of the people in the room, in the discussion, and immediately transporting them to Africa, you know, in an African church, and then watch their principles vanish. Uh, we all have cultural things that we use to intimidate and to put people into their place to make them realize that they're Johnny-come-latelys and they better remember that. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to get more specific than that, but all of you know the kinds of things I'm talking about. I, I will be somewhat specific and I'll talk about clothing. Clothing is one of the most effective. Typically, it's something that you can buy money or use a knife and it's done. You know, circumcision, the knife, it's done, right? You know, don't you know that we don't shop at Old Navy, you know? We shop at The Gap, or we shop at L.L. Bean, or we shop, you know? Um, so just look at clothing as a way of, of signing, putting your signature, your John Hancock at the end of a document. And everybody knows this is your document, right? This is what clothes do. Well, Circumcision was the way that the Jews were making it very clear to the Johnny-come-latelys that they didn't belong. They were saying to them, if you really want to please God, if you really want to enter this new covenant, you have to make the sign of the old covenant on your body. And what they were really saying is, you've got to be one of us, dude. So all these Gentiles coming into the church smacked right into this hurdle that no matter how much they loved Jesus and no matter how much they gloried in the cross of Christ, they were Johnny-come-latelys and they needed to, to, to bow down in front of the people of God, right? Now, the Apostle Paul, let's remember that the Apostle Paul had Timothy circumcised. 
So even when Paul stands against the circumcision, it's very beautiful to see that the Apostle Paul can move back and forth and deal with things in a way that shows that he's smiling. You know what I'm saying? He knew that Timothy's ministry would be more effective if Timothy was circumcised. He went ahead and did it. But man, here, look at how intense he is. Watch out for the dogs. You can even see him saying to Timothy, I'm going to have you be circumcised, but these guys are dogs. Right? This is like my dad when I was in high school. I, I lived to have long hair. Right? And my father wrote these articles that are in this book and stuff. And one of the articles he wrote was about how parents should have a sense of proportion in the battles they fought with their children and should make sure that they fought the battles that Scripture mandated and not the battles that the culture mandated, right? And he used as an example uh, cutting hair. He said, you know, if your kids want to have hair or a beard, for heaven's sakes, let them. It's not the end of the world. And then Saturday morning, I'd get up, and he says, Tim, we're going to the barber shop. <laughs> you know? And, you know, he'd just gotten done writing this article saying, you know, it's not a big deal. Let them, you know. And by God, my hair was going to get cut. <laughs> and I distinctly remember my father saying to me that it wasn't because he didn't like long hair, but it was because he didn't want my teachers and other authorities in my life grading me down because of how my hair was long. I've told people that, and they get righteously indignant about my dad, and they think I should have an issue with that, but I don't. Because that's Paul and Timothy, you know. I want you to be effective. These dogs will relegate you to being, you know, dirty if you're not circumcised. Timothy, go ahead, you know. Watch out for the dogs. Don't let them take you bondage. You know, sometimes you can go ahead and, you know, you can handle it. Uh, go ahead and handle it knowing that it means nothing, you know? And sometimes you'll have to do this. Sometimes you'll have to go into a church and you won't fight it the way Paul does. You'll just dress the way they want you to dress, you know? Um, but remember, what we're in here is we're in a theological controversy, okay? In other words, the key to rejoicing in the Lord is to not allowing people to tell you that it is the law and the works of the law, namely circumcision, that cause you to be okay with God. Okay? The key to rejoicing in the Lord is a doctrinal truth that you need to learn and that you need to guard tenaciously, even with language that's highly offensive. You see? In other words... Some of you leave. You have to choose a church. Don't go to a church that just every week tries to give you a high and never gives you doctrine which produces the high. You can't rejoice in the Lord unless you watch out for the dogs. You can't rejoice in the Lord by just watching out for the misguided souls. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say watch out for the misguided souls. He says watch out for the dogs. In other words, as you choose a church, choose a church where you have a sense that there is an enemy and that that enemy is met with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, namely, doctrinal truths. Liberty doesn't come from sentiment. Sentiment comes from liberty. And liberty is the product of God's truth, unleashed in your hearts, which produces joy. All right? Okay? So I'm trying to get a few things across here. I'm not just trying to say rejoice in the Lord, but I'm trying to show you that the process of Paul giving you joy 
is through truth, doctrinal truth, where he makes negative statements and positive statements. Okay, so we're observing how we're being led as we're being led. Yes, rejoice in the Lord is where we're going to end up this morning, but watch how you're being led through doctrinal truths that say no and yes. Now, let's go on into the now. The Apostle Paul says, okay, fine. You don't want to... Uh, you don't want to believe me on this issue that these guys are dogs. Fine. Okay, I can play this game too, right? And here's my playing the game. You have something to brag about? You think it's being a Jew? You think it's keeping the law? You think it's being circumcised that causes you to have joy, that causes you to have freedom, that causes you to be acceptable to God? All right, fine. Here we go. Let's play the game. Roll the dice, right? So he rolls the dice, and what does he come out with? And that's the next verses. What he comes out with is this. He says, although, verse 4, I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. Okay, fine. You want to talk about confidence in the flesh? I can talk about confidence in the flesh. Here we go. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. I'm the best. He says, circumcise the eighth day. In other words, what? Not an Ishmaelite, circumcised later, and not a proselyte. In other words, you want to talk about Johnny come lately all you dudes that were circumcised as adults. I was circumcised on the eighth day. In other words, I was a Jew. I was marked at the time the Word of God says that a covenant child is to be marked. Right? I'm not just a proselyte. I didn't get it just as an adult. I'm not a Johnny come lately. I was there at the beginning. All right? And then he says, of the nation of Israel. Again, I'm not a Gentile. He says, of the tribe of what? Of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, what, what does that mean? Well, who is the tribe of Benjamin? The tribe of Benjamin was the tribe of the first king of Israel. And what was that king's name? Saul. And what was Paul's name? Saul. Can you sense not just the pride of being a Jew, but the pride of being a particular tribe? The most prominent member of that tribe, other than the one it's named after, Benjamin, being the first king of Israel. And Paul had the name Saul. Okay? And it's not just talking about that being a great tribe. It's also saying, I can trace my lineage. Some of you guys... In the, some of you guys have lost your lineage. You don't even know what tribe you come from. You can't really even prove that you're Jews anymore. Hey, this dude, eighth day of the nation of Israel, show my lineage of the tribe of Benjamin. All right? Then he goes on. What does he say? A Hebrew of Hebrews. What's he saying then? Well, you remember the conflict between the Hebrew and the Hellenistic groups in, in, in the book of Acts? Uh, what was going on was that there were some Jews who in the dispersal, who in the times of captivity and coming back to the land, had lost their cultural and their ethnic identity. And what Paul is saying is, hey, I'm a Hebrew Hebrew. I didn't get Hellenized. I didn't get Greekized, all right, which is what Hellenized means. I didn't lose my corruption to the, to the empires that took us over or I didn't lose my, my, uh, my unique ethnic and racial identity. I'm a Hebrew's Hebrew, okay? In other words, I'm not a naturalized citizen. I have this citizenship. I never lost it. Uh, I speak Hebrew well, you know? And then he goes on, what else? As to the law of Pharisee, in other words, when it came to him making his identity as a religious teacher, he chose the most, he chose the most intensive group that there was, and that's the Pharisees. Only 6,000 of them. And so, you know, he, if he'd been a Roman Catholic, what would he have been? Absolutely a Jesuit. <laughs> you know, 
What else? He says, as the law Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church. And he says, and I wasn't willing to just sit in my ivory tower and, and, and debate history, but I was out there doing what I felt was for the good of the kingdom of God. I persecuted the church. You want to talk about being a good Jew? I persecuted the church. As to righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. That boggles my mind that he can say that. And you know, he meant it. It was blameless as to the law. But then what does he say? List all these things. But whatever things were gained for me, verse 7, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now watch this. Rejoice in the Lord. Hey, listen, I don't mind repeating myself because it'll, it'll be safety for you. Okay? Rejoice. I don't mind repeating. It'll be safety for you. Watch out for the dogs. They're going to try to take you bondage again. Look, if it's all about what they're into, if it's their trip, here's my trip. I'm better. All right? I invented what they want. You know? Before they even knew that it was, I was. You know? I did it all. Right? This is me. Okay? That's rubbish. This is a doctrinal truth without which you cannot rejoice in the Lord. All right? And now he returns and he says what? He says, I have counted this all rubbish. I have thrown it out. I have counted it to be excrement. What I want is the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And the first things he lost. The first things he lost when he was on the road to Damascus and, and Jesus appeared to him was he gave up all this crud. Now, does this mean that the Apostle Paul became an antinomian, somebody that hates the law and gives himself to evil because it don't matter? No. It isn't that all of a sudden he, he stopped observing God's truths in, in matters of sexual purity and matters of honesty and matters of pride and humility. But it is that he realized that the righteousness which would save him was the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so all of his own righteousness he counted as dung, as nothing, as rubbish, as excrement. And instead, he looked to Jesus Christ and to his righteousness, and that became the center of his heart. All right? Now, in what way is this a safeguard? Well, this is a safeguard in that it causes us to not be taken bondage again by Satan and by his forces of evil. And this is why he goes into this, watch out for the dogs, because he knows that Satan does not like to lose his slaves to the freedom that is in Christ. And so he seeks to take us into bondage. Paul is trying to inoculate us against returning again to the bondage of Satan, which is the bondage of thinking that we and ourselves can do something that will make us acceptable to God. And he's speaking to Christians. You know, it's not just pagans that think that works will cause us to go to heaven. It's Christians. The book of Galatians is written to Christians. The book of Galatians is not just talking about justification not being possible through works. It's also talking about sanctification, not being the product of works, but of the work of the Holy Spirit. So the Apostle Paul is speaking to Christians, and he's trying to keep us from returning to legalism. Now, let me ask you this question. 
When we receive the command where we're told to rejoice in the Lord, all right, um, what is it that we're being told to do and what is it that we're being told not to do? I've, I've opened up the truth, the doctrinal truth, that is supposed to be um, a help to us in doing what we're being told to do. Uh, but let's say that we all agree that we will not return to legalism, that we will not put our hope in our circumcision or in keeping the law or in any of the other sort of social cultural things that could cause people to think that we're okay. But instead, our eyes will be only on Jesus. All right? That's our commitment. All right? And then we again hear the command, rejoice in the Lord. We know this command is all through Scripture. It's a command. It will be a command that will give us victory. Then how do we do it? All right? We're not going to return to legalism, but then how do you rejoice in the Lord? What is it that we're supposed to do? Well, first, I want to give three, three things that we're supposed to do. Okay? First, negatively, we are to discipline all earthly joys. Now, remember, we're assuming that you've given up on legalism, but you still have the command to rejoice. And just because you've given up legalism doesn't mean that all of a sudden you are rejoicing in the Lord. So what are we to do? Number one, negatively, we are to discipline all earthly joys. Just as the law can be instructive to the life of a Christian as he's sanctified, it's not all negative, all right? It can be used correctly, but it can't be your hope. The problem with them was that they were using it to be their hope, to be their bondage, right? Well, so also marriage is a beautiful thing. Love is a beautiful thing. Azaleas are a beautiful thing. Sports can be a very beautiful thing. My son-in-law tells me that he learned discipline through sports. I think discipline is one of the most important things in life that I lack. And that's why I'm so delighted so many of you are into sports or into music. Because these are almost the only places left where we're taught discipline. Discipline is a good thing. But if you think that the goal of your life and the thing that gives you value in life is that you're disciplined with your instrument and that at the end of your uh, uh, recital, everybody tells you you did a good job, you're bankrupt. Why? Because every single one of these earthly things is going to burn. There is going to come a time where even things like wives and husbands and children, which is almost at the center of the most pure earthly good, all right, even those things will fall by the side. You go to a deathbed and nobody's, nobody's focusing on their, in the moments of death, they're not focusing on the joy and unity and intimacy and, and hope that they have because of their children and their wife. The valley of the shadow of death is a very lonely valley. And you go it alone. You don't go out with groups. Even if you're in a car where everybody dies at the same time, you die alone. And you stand before the judgment seat of God alone. And so even the most pure joys and goods that God gives us, and that he gives us for our enjoyment, are not things that our souls should cling to in opposition to the joy of Jesus Christ. In other words, everything in life could be an idol. And if I were to say to you, have you ever known a mother who's had her children as an idol, every single person here will immediately go, yup, 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 yup. You ever known a man that's had his job as an idol or his bank accounts as an idol? Everybody will go, yup. You ever look at a young person who, who's vain, bodybuilders, stand in front of the mirror, women, vain, their body's an idol. Yep, body can be an idol. It's a beautiful thing. It can be an idol. Marriage can be, absolutely everything can be an idol. 
So the first thing in order to have our joy in the Lord is we have to discipline the things of this life that seduce us. If those things take the place of Jesus Christ, you can't have joy in the Lord. Now, obviously, if I say you shouldn't have alcohol as an idol, everybody goes, yup, yup, yup. You know? But what about your marriage? There are many men whose work is an idol. Many pastors. We're not here to be workers. We're here to work. God gives us commands to work. The man who won't work shouldn't eat. But again, work is not to be the thing that we find our ultimate joy in. It will give us joy. But only insofar is it subordinate to our identity, our position, our hope, our idol being the only thing that isn't an idol, namely Jesus Christ. So the first way to get joy in the Lord is to forsake having joy in any other thing in a way that threatens our joy in the Lord. You've got to discipline them. If there's something that you find seducing you into forgetting Jesus, cut it off. Or go without it for a week. This is why the great disciplines of fasting and of observing one day in seven when we don't work, you know, the discipline of giving money, these things prune these terrible, seductive idols that try to get us all the time. So the first thing to have joy is to not have it in the improper places and in an improper way. All right? The second way to have joy is to meditate to think on and to turn our eyes upon what? Jesus. Not just to turn away. Turning away is nothing. You know, the seven other demons come back in once you've gotten rid of one, right? But we are to turn our eyes from the world and all that fascinates us here and turn our eyes on Jesus. Recently, a young woman was at our house for dinner and she had spent years away from the Lord without hope. Without hope given herself to sin. And uh, so we were asking her, how did you come back? And she said, well, you know, I was so discouraged and so defeated. But then one day I had the hope to do what? I had the hope to turn on Spirit 95. And when I turned it on, Sandy Patty was singing a song. And it was about Jesus and the cross. And then I remembered the cross of Jesus. And I realized there was hope for me. The second thing we have to do is we have to think about and meditate upon and turn our eyes upon our precious Savior, Jesus. You know, there are many ways of turning your eyes on Jesus. An essential way is to be faithful with the family of God. You don't turn your eyes on Jesus and turn your back on the family of God, the church of Jesus Christ. You don't do that. The church teaches us so much that we don't want to learn. The church is annoyingly impertinent. The church is excruciatingly fallen. And as we live in the church, our eyes are turned to Jesus because we were reminded that there is not one among us that is righteous. No, not one. And that's what God intends. He puts us in churches. To turn our eyes on Jesus, we attend worship and we are reminded that their feet are on a slippery rock and that they are headed to hell. As we worship, we are reminded of the end of the wicked. 
and of the hope of the Christian. How could you not have this made so powerfully evident this morning in our worship? But you know there are other ways. One of the ways is listening to Christian radio. It does turn our eyes on Jesus. Another way is art. Another way is books. Another way is conversation. I'm not even against you having a cross hanging from your rearview mirror. Some people would think that's idolatry, and God bless you if you disagree with me on that. But you turn your eyes on Jesus. We love the hymn. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's a light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Through death into life everlasting, he passed and we follow him there. Over us sin no more hath dominion for more than conquerors we are. His word shall not fail you. He promised, believe him. And all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying, his perfect salvation to tell. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Now, one final thing. Negatively, discipline and prune all other joys. Positively, turn your eyes on Jesus and look at him. And then one more positive, and that is, don't just look at Jesus generally, but look at what? Look at the cross. Look at that supreme work that Jesus did for us. And when you look at the cross, just don't look at it generally. Look at it specifically. Look at the loneliness when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Look at the pain as they put the nails in and he hung there and he was asphyxiated. He couldn't breathe. Look at the scandal of being naked and being spit upon. Of having people mock you. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him. Look at the weight of the sins of the world. Look at the weight of your sin. Meditate on the weight, the tremendous weight of your own personal sin that was on Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross. And guess what? As you look at that gory work, all right, you will rejoice in the Lord. You see, there's no conflict between this terribly filthy work of Jesus Christ and joy. Because it is this work that purchased our redemption. Again, a hymn, In the cross of Christ I glory, towering over the wrecks of time. All the light of sacred story gathers round its head sublime. When the woes of life o'ertake me, hopes deceive and fears annoy. Never shall the cross forsake me. Lo, it glows with peace and joy. When the sun of bliss is beaming, light and love upon my way, from the cross the radiance streaming adds more luster to the day. Bane and blessing, pain and pleasure, by the cross are sanctified. Peace is there that knows no measure, joys that through all time abide. In the cross of Christ I glory, towering over the wrecks of time, all the light of sacred story gathers round its head sublime.
Do you glory in the cross of Jesus Christ? Or do you glory in your own works, in your own discipline, your ability to play a piano or a trumpet or a bass? The wife that God's given you, the children, do you glory in your children? Down, boy. What do you glory in? As I said, there will come a time when this life will be fading. When you will be at the end and your family and your children, you won't be able to see them. And at that moment, will you be looking for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells? Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard to you. And Nehemiah, Nehemiah gave this command to the Israelites that had returned. He said, Go eat of the fat and drink of the sweet and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, a little personal confession as we end. And don't worry, this won't be a Pauline Finally, <laughs> um, I was reading Lloyd Jones, and he said this. He said, "If I were rejoicing in myself in my own preaching, Paul says, their attacks upon me would be very hurtful. But thank God, I do not preach for my own sake or reputation. I do it for His sake, so that though they are trying to hurt me, they are not touching me at all. I rejoice in the Lord. Therefore, I cannot be attacked at that point." Is it not obvious that what makes us all so sensitive is our self-consciousness and our self-esteem? And it is these things that make us vulnerable to the attacks that are made upon us. The one thing needed is to rejoice in the Lord, just to forget yourself. You're not working for yourself, you're working for Him. As I read that, I admit it, I'm working for myself. I'm not working for Jesus. And that's the reason that when the gospel is attacked, I and often the elders and the deacons and our our wives and you, you, we take it personally. It's because we've forgotten that it's not about us. It's about God. And so I want you to join me in repenting of self-esteem and and self-concepts and self-awareness and pride, and all the things that put us in bondage and keep us from rejoicing in the Lord. You know, it's so true what he says. Self-esteem isn't liberty. It's Christ's esteem that's liberty. And you can't have self-esteem until you see yourself accurately, which is just a sinner saved by grace. And then, if you're just a sinner saved by grace, it doesn't matter what people say to you about yourself. If it's true and you failed, you repent, but you already knew you were a sinner. And if it isn't true, you know that they're really attacking Christ, not you. Now, this is true for me. It's true for all of you. Lighten up. Loosen up. You know, pry your grasping, gnarly hands off of the goods of this life and and chill out. Take a chill pill, as Taylor says. Have your identity in Christ. Don't have it in yourself. And then you will be a fool for Christ. I I, I love 
My father, Bishop Hall, was an Episcopal guy that trained people for the ministry by having them come into New York and be missionaries for the Lord, right? Radical concept, you know. They'd walk the streets and be witnesses, and that's how they trained for the pastorate. And they used to wear sandwich boards, all right? And my dad's favorite one when he was growing up was the sandwich board that went, as you walked towards the guy, the front of the board said, I'm a fool for Christ. And as he went by, you saw on the back, it said, whose fool are you? Be a fool for Christ. Everybody's a fool. Michael Jordan's a fool. You can be a fool. But if you're a fool for Christ, as my dad would say, God's no man's debtor. You can't lose anything that he won't give you back a hundred times what you've lost. And your reputation, chill out. Take a chill pill. When you go home this summer, be a fool for Christ with your family. Rejoice in the Lord. It'll be an inoculation against you. Any taking in bondage of the Holy Spirit. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things, to preach the same things again. It don't matter. It's not, not a problem. And it is a safeguard for you. Pray for me. Pray for me that I will not consider the reputation of this church and myself anymore. That's such a bondage for me. But don't pray for me without looking at yourself. And give up your reputation. And when we come back together this fall, let's all take chill pills and be fools for Christ and see what the Lord will do. Okay?